Soho, the beating heart of London's West End, a playground of hedonism, of culture and of art. A place that pushed boundaries and in turn drew in some of the country's most iconic artists with its seedy underbelly and faded glamour amid which many others found themselves when fame and wealth failed to materialise. My name is Scotty and Soho has always held a very special place in my heart. I cut my teeth here as a performance artist, an artist and even a drag queen. Today we're taking a walk around Soho's artistic past, going around some of the pubs, the drinking clubs, restaurants, nightclubs and members clubs, which took Soho's artists from breakfast to bed. I'm going to be meeting Take Curators, artists and veterans of the 1950s Soho scene along the way. So we're on Dean Street, which is sort of the heart of Soho. It's right bang in the middle of it. And we're outside the French house. It does feel like a place where you sort of got to know the secret handshake to get in. So we'll see how this goes. Art historian Michael Pepiat was a polo neck student when he first came here to the French house. He was on an assignment for a student magazine to interview the painter Francis Bacon. A few bottles of wine and a few years later, Michael became Bacon's good friend and biographer. I was studying the history of art and I wanted to do something uh, modern of my own time in the early 60s. And somebody said to me, oh, well, you should talk to Francis Bacon. He's just had a show, a big exhibition, a retrospective at the Tate, and he's the most interesting painter in England now. So I found out a bit about him, and through this friend whose mother had been photographed by John Deacon, I met John Deacon just over there by the, uh, by the, the beer pumps, and John Deacon said, well, my dear, I don't know whether you could meet the great painter now that she's become so famous, so famous. And, of course, Bacon immediately sort of wheeled round. He was standing at the bar, I didn't even know what he looked like, and said, don't listen to that old fool. Why don't you come and join us? Now, what are you drinking? Francis would have gone uh, probably anywhere where he could get a, a, a drink in congenial company. I mean, there were several pubs around here that they all used. John Deacon, Francis, Dan Farson. But this became a favourite, I think, because it had a kind of informal, clubby atmosphere. They were likely, really, they were likely to come across friends of theirs here. And it had, I suppose, they served, you know, they served more wine uh, than most pubs in those days. Wine was a rarity. People drank beer. So they here they would have served wine. And so what does Soho offer? Because, like, of course, Freud, Bacon, Dickie and Dennis, um, like, you know, the list can go on of people that are in the Tate collection. Like, what, what did Soho offer then? Well, it was the kind of area to let your hair down. It was several things. First of all, of course, it was more permissive. It was more sexually permissive. So that gave it a kind of allure. And then it was continental. It was where the foreign restaurants, which tended to be better then than the British restaurants, um, existed. 
it became a kind of play area where it was where people, as I say, it's where people went to, to relax, to let their hair down, to get drunk, do a little bit of shopping because you could only find, you know, this kind of bread, uh, German bread or French bread in Soho, and otherwise you'd have to make do with Hovis. <laughs> so the artists come here because of multiculturalism, about cultures that they can access freely. Yes, in but it was a different world then. It wasn't that. Uh, it wasn't that developed. It's much more developed in many ways. It's nicer. You know, London was drab. I'm a war baby. I grew up with rationing. There were very few luxuries, and orange was a luxury. So things were very tight, you know. It was very grey. It was very pinched. Soho was in the van of all that. It was low-key, was naughty. You know, you were taking a bit of a walk on the wild side. And, of course, it attracted the artists because they tended to be people with good taste who wanted something superior and also I suppose at the time you could say that they were very attracted by European art by the idea of notably of Paris as being the centre of the art world and at that time London you know wasn't considered at all an art centre it was a sort of poor cousin Uh, London was a bit pale a bit grey and in that grey Soho had colour I had made an assumption that because of my consciousness of Soho, of being gay and queer Soho, that perhaps in the 60s that's what attracted artists like Bacon or Dickie Chopping or Dennis Worth Miller. Is that, I guess that's not the case then. Did, this, did Soho not offer like a, a gay safe space? I think it was safer. It was safer, but I don't think there was a safe gay space. Bacon didn't want one. He was very happy that it should be uh, rather dangerous. He thought it gave it more thrill. He would have been very disappointed, I'm afraid, my dears, uh, to find, uh, you know, that it was safe. It was the danger that attracted him. It was half the, half the interest was in the danger. There were all these little clubs, and, of course, Francis knew them, uh, you know, he could find them blindfold. It was as though you walked, you went with him, you walked through a wall and you were in a different... Of course, you were drunk. You walked through a wall and you were in a different space. There was the Iron Lung, was run by two ex-policemen, uh, one of whom was called Maltese Mary. <laughs> oh, if I ever run a, an establishment, I think that's the name I'd like above the door. So you sort of hinted to Francis Bacon being a bit of a thrill-seeker, maybe, about being a thrill-seeker? You know, quite liking the fact that... Well, certainly. I mean, uh, his painting is thrill-seeking. Uh, he used to say, I paint in order to excite myself. And uh, I'm sure in his uh, sex life it was exactly the same, yes. What kind of person was Bacon? That's a big question. He was a very big person. The simplest formula I found is that when he came into a room, the atmosphere went right up. He was magnetic. He was electrifying. He brought energy uh, to wherever he was. He was immensely funny. He could be vicious, also immensely. Uh, he could be enormously charming, uh, gregarious, and um, very generous. All those things, and very black, how shall I say, very uh, doer, very hard. Um, all the extremes. So he was a fascinating uh, and mesmerizing person. 
but he did have a lot of friends, uh, photographers like John Deacon, a lot of writers. Uh, I was the, the young one in that group. He always bought champagne for everybody in sight. So, you know, that's a sure way of having plenty of friends. And as soon as he turned up, people gathered. So he was at the centre of a group. He was always at the centre, Francis. Down the road from the French house was the Colony Rooms. It was founded by Muriel Belcher, who ran the members' club with her Jamaican girlfriend, Carmel. We're now outside where the infamous Colony Club used to be. And the Colony was... It was like no other place, really. It had this very narrow staircase leading up to a very green room. It was all green, so the green door leading up to this windy staircase, and you go up onto the first floor, and it was just sort of a bit like a dilapidated living room with lots of pieces of artwork and signed photos on the wall and a really small bar, which sometimes could take you hours to get served at. And it was very much that sort of version of Cheers where everybody knows everyone's business everybody knows everybody's name if you were a bit arty if you had a funny haircut or if you knew anyone with a funny haircut who was a bit arty you were welcome Soho embraced behaviours which were frowned on outside of its borders drunkness rudeness but most importantly it was about an endorsed experimentation in both art and sexuality the painter and the very brilliant Molly Parkin was a member of the Colony Rooms in the 1950s. Like Bacon and Freud, she lived and painted in Chelsea, but she came to Soho to socialise and to party. Whatever you're doing, if you're a painter or a writer or a poet, the essential uh, element of your chosen path is uh, totally solitary. It's just you and the writing paper or you and the canvas and the paints. And uh, so that makes it more essential in a sense and more extraordinary to bump into people who are a reflection of your own chosen path. Because uh, you don't have to mess around with ordinariness uh, of uh, introductions. You, you recognise a kindred spirit uh, as soon as you meet them. And uh, with uh, the colony room, that was full of kindred spirits. And Soho was full of kindred spirits. Soho was unlike anywhere else that I'd ever been. And the place where I found, first of all, to be acquainted with other artists was in a basement club full of artists. It was an artist's club and it had been started by John Minton, who was a very famous artist. That was a, an amazing place, but somebody, uh, 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 Tony Tooth, he introduced me to the colony. He took me there first, Tony Tooth. And then, of course, the one who I felt mo more at home with uh, from that point of view was um, the Irish Bacon. <laughs> we were fellow cults because he was Irish and I was Welsh. And so there was a lot of English there as well. So we struck the right note 
from the minute we looked at each other, had the same sense of humour and uh, and the, the same staying power, many hours of it. And that's how he and I just melded together. And that's how just about everybody was in the colony because it was run by Muriel, who was an extraordinary lesbian woman herself. So it, it was... Um, irresistible really and the art is a reflection of that irresistibility the last last time I ever spent time with Bacon he said to me because we'd been there all afternoon and early evening and he said to me Moll shall we switch venues now and so I said yeah so we went out onto Dean Street and he said let's pop into this uh, this place and it was the pub on the corner and he said you like it in there Mull and uh, when we went in it it must have been I can't remember when they stopped uh, printing five pound notes those white big white flappy things his pockets were stuffed with these and when we went in it was full of the most beautiful boys because it was before it was legal to be gay and these were gay boys who when they hit 16 or certainly 18 from all over Britain the word had gone round underground if uh, you want to leave home and be amongst your own go to Dean Street and uh, when uh, he'd been there many times when this had happened before but I hadn't known it uh, when he came in Francis uh, he just popped his hand in his pocket and he threw all these white five pound notes in the air and everybody scrabbled and nobody went without and and there was cheering and there were lots of huggings with me and everything I don't know how long we stayed there but it was the greatest fun sweetest fun where they'd all come from and they'd only been some of them a few days in London but they've just left home and then uh I always like to end my evenings and I, I was living at the Chelsea Arts Club at the time and I said, I'm going home now, I'm going back to Chelsea. Oh, he said, come gambling with me, Maul. And so he said, I'll make you lucky. And uh, so I said, no, I'll hop in a taxi. So he put me in a taxi and he said to the driver, you've got a very precious cargo here, mate. Soho is known, and some might say famous for, hosting the wild parties and scandalous social lives of the so-called London School of Painters, like Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud. But if we only focus on the artists that we already know about, we risk missing out a more diverse picture of Soho history. From 1956 to Arbley Street, around the corner from the Colony Rooms, was home to Gallery One, a small gallery that showed work from many non-British artists, including the Indian painter F.N. Souza. I travelled to the Tate Britain to find out more from curator Eleanor Cripper. F.N. Souza was an artist who had come to London in '49 from India. Uh, he was born in Goa and had moved to Bombay as a child. He has his first exhibition at Gallery 1 in 53. And on the occasion of his second exhibition in 55, he sells, the, you know, the, all the works in the exhibition. And this is a very important moment. He very much posi- positions Sousa as a prominent artist in London, but also enables Gallery 1 to operate on a much bigger scale and with a greater vision. While... 
D'Amelio of Bacon, uh, Bacon Freud, Auerbach hanging out at the colony room and in other, at the French bar and others. Uh, very well known, a slightly lesser known story is the one of Gallery One, uh, which was indeed a truly extraordinary site uh, in London, particularly in the 1950s. Victor Musgrave and Ida Carr met in Cairo in 1944. In 1953, Musgrave opened a gallery at 1 Litchfield Street, and this became very quickly an extraordinarily important site where artists from the continent and London would meet. You have to think, 1953, you still had rationing. London was still very much suffering from the war and reconnecting London with Paris and with the continent was something which was happening very slowly. Musgrave was able to bring over many artists from the continent. He was uh, the one who gave the first solo exhibition to Yves Klein, but also showed Enrique Bay, Flax's artist. In 1956, they moved in a new location at 20 Darbley Street, which is very much at the, in the centre of Soho. And in doing so, Musgrave was very much enabled by uh, the cells he has made of uh, Sousa's work. Currently on view at Britain is Crucifixion by Sousa. It was painted in 1959 and was exhibited at Gallery One. Uh, Crucifixion is a key painting uh, because it very much relates to one of the major themes in his practice, which is religion. Um, We see a man that we recognize as being crucified because of his position, his uh, arms are open and his very contorted body. I think what is interesting at the time is that I think by now we look at religious themes as being uh, quite old-fashioned in a way and we sort of struggle to position them uh, vis-à-vis our contemporary culture. While at the time it was actually not that unusual, if you think of Francis Bacon, the crucifixion was actually one of his major themes too. And although Bacon was uh, not religious, he very much felt that the iconography of the crucifixion exemplifies something about human suffering and about this um, human condition of the time of uh, endurance and of struggle. And I think this connection is very clear between Bacon and Sousa at the time. If we look at this figure of Christ on the cross, we see someone who's clearly in pain, who has been suffering, who has been put under this very torturous experience, but we also see a very menacing expression. And I think this capacity to conflate is truly different emotions and typologies of a personalities within one figure is something Suze's extraordinary art. And again, we can see the relationship with Bacon. And I think, I think both Bacon and Sousa see individual just as black or, or white, as, as good or bad, but very much were aware of the complexities of the Eastern personalities of individuals and the fact that we have these different drives within ourselves. I think Gallery One only existed for around 10 years and although he 
organize very important exhibitions in a way it did encourage the career of these artists into the 60s and 70s where effectively the art market in London truly expanded. And one could say despite uh, Sousa's work sold very well, there were not many artists who were very well received at the time. You have to think of if Klein now being such a prominent figure, at the time his exhibition was highly criticized in the press. There was no purchase from on the part of any museum a bit collector, they were seen as truly at the fringes of institutional art and museums. And so at the time, they were not perceived as being central to the history of art, not in the way we see them now. We certainly have to acknowledge there are issues relating to racism and the fact of how, especially in the past, but still, you know, up to now in many ways, we have been looking at the work of artists coming from outside Britain and outside Europe in terms of their foreigner character, in terms of what uh, now we know define as uh, orientalizing one's work, as seeing it as derivative, uh, rather than looking at the strengths and the originality within the work. And this is, of course, part of the history we need to be very self-critical of and we need to rectify. And I think uh, is certainly at the core of Tate's activities and hopes that we are continuously looking at gaps in our collection and we are constantly attempting to tell stories that enable artists who have been left out for so long to be reintegrated in the main narrative of British art and international art, of course. So along this journey, I found out who Soho has belonged to, who cut their teeth here, who drank in the clubs and the pubs here, and who made work, and which artists were here. And I guess at the start of this, I felt a bit bitter that like Soho no longer belonged to me, that Soho wasn't mine anymore. But maybe that's the point. Maybe Soho never belongs to anybody. Maybe it's only yours for a very short period of time. Maybe it now belongs to the next queer radicals or the next generation of fine artists or perhaps the next bacon. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do write us a review and subscribe. We'll be back next week with another walk of art. And if you want to explore some of the areas of London yourself, take a look at the accompanying Walks of Art book on the Tate website. My name is Scotty and you've been listening to Walks of Art Soho.